Hey, Three Crosses family, AJ back on the podcast. Welcome back to Going Deeper. We're talking through Bathsheba today. We're walking through the genealogy of Jesus and looking at all the sacred scandals that are involved that lead to Christ our King. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And with that, let's go deeper. joining us to talk about the story of Bathsheba is none other than Patty Crone. Patty, welcome to the podcast. It's been a while since we've sat down and talked, well, even though we talk pretty Thanks much every day me. about this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I know um, one of the things that is unique about the Bathsheba story is that it is found right in the middle of this thing that we call Samuel. And so the Bathsheba story comes out of 2 Samuel 11. And so anytime we jump straight into the middle of a book, I always like to ask, okay, what is like the macro context of what's going on? So what's going on in Samuel in general? And then feel free to take us down as narrow as you want to go because 2 Samuel 11 begins with like a very specific time frame in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and all and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So it seems like there's something very specific going on. So uh, help us understand the macro context and then zoom us into what's going on right here. Well, great. The this, a book of Samuel is a great transition from last week with Ryan and Ruth and the book of Judges. The people of God are moving from the anarchy of Judges to a monarchy. First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings together are actually called the book of Kings in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's all considered one story of the kings. Um, Samuel is the transitional and pivotal character in the book. He's the one that anoints God's first king, Saul, and then David. And he's the one that helps Israel transition from tribal peoples to a unified monarchy. So the theme, though, of kingship is actually all, all the way back to Genesis with the patriarchs and God saying that the scepter will not depart from Judah. There's king language throughout the Old Testament. But the kingship of God that exists from the beginning of time is that God is the king of his people and that his people are to be radically different and that his leaders are not to be autonomous. So when Israel demands a king in the book of 1 Samuel, they are essentially rejecting God as their king, and they're wanting to be like all the other nations. They want a human king to deliver them from their enemies, which is interesting in the setting of 2 Samuel 11. So the prophet Samuel warns God's people of the consequences of oppression. He says, a king will take your, your daughters, and a king will send your sons to war, which is also fascinating when we look at the life of David. But the people keep demanding that God give them what they want, and even though they're warned, so they're given Saul, who begins well and ends dark and dysfunctional. Then they get David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king of Israel, who also falls into deep sin. So by the end of 2 Samuel, the reader is struck by this flawed nature of David, and the reader is left longing for a better king. 
Um, all of it is to point to a greater king, the messianic monarch that God promises David in 2 Samuel 7. So the hope of 1 and 2 Samuel is that a faithful king continues to reign, the king of kings, and fulfill his plan of redemption. Now, as we narrow down to David's specific reign, we see incredible success, horrific failure, and also the promises of God. David unifies the kingdom. He establishes Jerusalem as a capital. He's bringing peace to the kingdom, prosperity. God promises to build David an eternal house. Um, and then he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. David's kingdom completely unravels in 2 Samuel 11. And it is interesting that it's bracketed. Bathsheba's account is bracketed by war. Um, it begins with war, as you mentioned, and it ends with war. And as I was wrestling with the text, it was interesting to consider that while David did not go to war against God's enemies, he created a war within God's kingdom, a war zone for Bathsheba and Uriah. And that, that is, I think that's intentional by the writer that we see this war zone that happens within the kingdom at the hands of its king. Yeah, so often we get to these parts of scriptures and it gets really confusing. And, uh, you know, there's so many wars, so many people, so many interactions going on. And yeah, it's super helpful to give that macro context so you can sort of follow the, the logic of the story. And, you know, you end up with Samuel especially getting like these big moments. And I feel like this one is a huge moment uh, for David's life and for Bathsheba's life. And so I, want, I just want to read the first part in 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 to 5. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And like I said, this is like a huge moment in the story of David, which brings some questions because so many times that I've heard this preached is, you know, you hear the story of David and we like immediately jump to Psalm 51 and talk about like David's attitude towards the situation. We've been following David this whole time and like this seems like a big road bump for David. But one of the things I appreciated about this series was we really stopped and we really paused and we thought about Bathsheba because she tends to get, you know, the, the short end of the stick here in this story and a lot of sermons, a lot of messages. And I know this is something, as we were talking about this series, you were wrestling with um, internally uh, as you were preparing for your message, like how much airtime do I give David? How much airtime do I give Bathsheba? And so often this happens with, you know, instances where there's a lot of hurt. Like some people get passed over, some people get overlooked. And so it was really refreshing to hear um, the perspective of Bathsheba and, and leaning into more of that. My question for you is, could you like let us into your process of just preparing this message and some of the wrestling match you had with, hey, how much airtime do I give David here? How much airtime do I you know, bring out Bathsheba's story? Like, What was that balance for you? And what did you see just in your research and in thinking about these things? My journey with Bathsheba has started, started actually in seminary. And I think that fed into what um, what kind of came to bear through the message. I remember sitting in a seminary class and having a professor who, really prolific writer, um, older gentleman, um, 
talking about Bathsheba as being exploited and sex trafficked. And my chin literally dropped. Um, I grew up in a purity culture, and all the messages I had ever heard about David and Bathsheba called it an affair, called it an illicit affair, maybe even a sordid affair, but always implied that she was complicit. In fact, many people say, well, still say, well, Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. She was not. That's not in the text. David is on the roof. So it is possible that Bathsheba is even bathing within her home, and he's seeing her through a window. Um, it's so at so. At the same time, I started working with assault victims and those of domestic violence and recognizing how often people who are exploited are actually blamed or considered complicit and how that re-victimizes them. So it's been a personal journey for me um, working with, excuse me, working with assault victims, both men and women, that we name things as they are. Um, and the redemption of God that comes in the most horrific and de dehumanizing evils. That's the other privilege of being a counselor is watching what God can do. So we're not just exposing the reality of what Bathsheba experienced, but we're also talking about the redemption of God. So the challenge was to teach God's point of view, not Bathsheba's, uh, in some sort of response to the many teachings I've heard on David's. I think that's where I wrestled personally, is I didn't want to react to all the messages I heard where we tried to give David some, um, some grace that maybe the text doesn't give him, and, um, or we push too quickly to his repentance and we don't give Bathsheba that airtime. I didn't want to over-respond to, um, to what I've heard in the past. Um, and so it was a challenge to figure out how much. I, I, it's still a challenge to, consider, to, to even look back and say, did I give David enough or too much? I tried to stay with how David's um, actions and response to his evil impacted Bathsheba so that he is very much a part of the story. Again, not to over-respond or to react to other teachings I had heard. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, throughout the story, you're following this David character and, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of times we just omit Bathsheba and like the, the pain that must have happened. And, you know, I've loved this Sacred Scandal series because we've just taken the time to sit in a lot of these moments that must have been incredibly painful, but sometimes we just jump to the conclusion, we jump to the salvation, we jump to you know the forgiveness, the, the redemption, and we forget that, yeah, a lot of people in our congregation even are sitting right now in this muck and mire, uh, even in this you know, joyous holiday. And, you know, one of the other commonalities that I'm seeing in this series is um, oftentimes there's characters that are presented to illuminate what's going on in the heart of presumably the main character here. And I see this again with, with David, actually, um, because one of the characters that, you know, I don't know how much we talked about it in the sermon, but uh, one of the characters that came to my attention was Uriah. And so David ends up taking Bathsheba, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. And then you have this interaction with David and Uriah in verses 6 to 13. And it's really interesting. David seems to be, you know, playing this game where he's trying to get him to go home, uh, you know, go go to, down to your house and wash your feet, he says to Uriah. And it says that Uriah doesn't do it. It slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, did not go down to his house, literal defying the king which is super interesting. You know, what does that mean that this person is defying him? Um, and David finds out he didn't go home and Uriah explains 
The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And so David does it one more time. Uriah doesn't bite. Um, My question to you is, how does the character of Uriah, this seemingly odd interaction where David is trying to get him to go home and Uriah is sleeping at the, the gate, um, how does this foil or, or help us see the characters of David and maybe even Bathsheba better? Um, what's going on with this Uriah character? It's so amazing. Both for Samuel or Second Samuel 11 and then 12, Nathan's parable, the way he describes the owner of the ewe lamb, Uriah, as, you know, feeding the lamb from his own hand and holding the lamb that the, the the treasuring of Bathsheba in contrast to David who sends her away like a used dinner plate, right? So we have that first piece where Uriah is battling for the good. He's battling the enemies of, of God's people while David is in Jerusalem being the enemy of one of God's beloved. Um, we see Uriah's purity, his tenderness, um, just in contrast to David's corruption and his cruelty. Um, Uriah won't enjoy intimacy with his wife, not in a time of war. And actually, when you bring that up about him defying the king, God had said to his kings and to those who are in battle, they aren't to do those things. They aren't to enjoy their wives and when it's in a time of battle. So Uriah is defying King David to honor the king of kings in not going home to his wife. So he won't enjoy his wife during a time of war. David will take another man's wife in a time of war creating an entire war zone again for Bathsheba and Uriah in Jerusalem, where they should have been safe, not on the field. So Uriah is fiercely committed to God's law. He uses covenant language, and some make it make a um, point out of the fact that he's called a Hittite to let us know he's actually outside the covenant of God's people. He's one that's been brought in, and yet this outsider is more committed to the ark, to the covenant, to the promise of God than David is. David, by contrast, breaks almost every of the Ten Commandments in his actions, as you look at um, 2 Samuel 11. Uriah gives his life for his king, and he gives his life for his country, and David takes life for himself and for his own little kingdom. Um, So Uriah really, in many ways, is a Christ figure, where David actually partners with God's enemy. And I do think the text, Samuel, the presumable writer, is wanting us to really identify and see what has really happened here and that we don't pass over it too quickly. It's so amazing. I mean, bringing out the fact that, you know, Uriah the Hittite, it almost seems like a last name, but it is so important, especially in the series, if you've been following along, like we've met a Canaanite in Rahab, we've met a Moabite in Ruth, and now we're meeting this Hittite that's seemingly doing everything that David was supposed to be doing. So again, if you're feeling like an outsider out there, it's like this Christmas season is for you. Like the lineage of Jesus is full of outsiders doing the faithful thing, and um, out of that line comes Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, the, the emphasis turns back to David again in this story, and this is my next question for you. It seems like this whole thing starts out with his eyes, like he, he's 
and maybe even not, maybe even before that, it might even start out with his idleness. Like he's, he's kind of just sitting around like doing things and he goes to his eyes. He, he sees Bathsheba, he takes her. I know you put an emphasis on the taking of things in your sermon. So he takes Bathsheba and then it seems like the sin just compounds at this moment. Uh, he, he figures out that Bathsheba's pregnant, so he, he begins to frame Uriah. He sends Uriah to the front line to have him die, and you know it just seems like this sin keeps snowballing. And so my question for you here is, um, as with your counseling background, I'm wondering if we could address both the front end of this chain of events and maybe the back end. So the front end question is, um, you know, how can we avoid these things that, you know, let me rephrase that, Daniel. So when you're editing, how do we even avoid these situations? What, what can we do to, to help us, you know, perhaps David was struggling with his own sexual desires and, and, and sin. How do we uh, set up our lives in a way that can prevent this sin from even happening, this cycle of sin? And then my second question is for people that may find themselves deep in this cycle. Maybe they've covered it up for so long that they've, you know, made enemies. They've, they've done all sorts of things. What's like a good first step out of that? You know, I can imagine there's a lot of covering up going on. I can imagine there's scheming. I can imagine there's all sorts of different things. But what's the, like the first step out of this like deep spiral of sin? Wow. Those are... <laughs> Let's let's start with the first one. Those are heavy. Yeah. So what should David have done? I think I was really struck and in second or second Samuel 12, seven and eight, when God says to David, you're, or Nathan through God, through the prophet Nathan uh, replies to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you more. And to me, that has really hit me that as David was looking out on his roof, there was some sort of longing in him, whether it was a sexual thing or whether it was he was feeling lonely or whether he was bored, whatever he was experiencing, he was experiencing some sort of emptiness in which he was wanting to fill. And God wanted to give David. He, he says, well, you could have asked for more. And so I wonder what would have happened if David would have just confessed, hey, I'm feeling lacking, God. And I don't know what that is. And if, if David, the psalmist, could have stopped and done a psalm in that moment of I'm, I'm wrestling with, 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 his, with these temptations. I mean, ultimately, David forgets who he belongs to. So then he forgets who Uriah belongs to. So I think that is the, the core of sin, is that we forget that we belong to a God who is good, who is faithful, whose love endures forever, who is just, who is kind, who wants our good. And the enemy whispers in, no, God does not want your good. You need to go grab it. It's the sin of Eden, right? He takes the one apple. He's got, a, he's got wives in the palace if, if, it was, if it was sexual in nature. So I think at the core of of what we, where we're at when that, when desire gives birth to sin, as James talks about it, is to identify the desire, to pause, um, to voice that desire to God. 
Um, and maybe another, maybe it would have been good to have brought Nathan in earlier so Nathan didn't have to go <laughs> to David. Um, as far as what to do once you see the devastation, I, I'm still wrecked by David's confession. I, it, it really, in my experience as a counselor, people who commit this kind of evil rarely repent like David did because the, typically under the core of that kind of abuse of power is entitlement. Somehow David gave into an entitlement that wasn't, it must not have been, it must not have taken a deeper root. So while the consequences of his sin was like an atomic bomb going off in Jerusalem, I mean, just think about the lives that were impacted that aren't mentioned in the text. Um, David's repentance is really actually quite remarkable, and it is unusual. And maybe that's the hope for those of us that have, that have, that have, have actually committed sins that have devastated so many lives is it is never too late to, to go to the God of justice, righteousness, and peace. The other thing I see about David, even as his kingdom is unraveling, is, um, and you can see this in the death of his son, is David expects consequences. And I think that's another piece I see working as a counselor is too often somebody who has committed sin for lots of reasons wants all the consequences to go away. And maybe it's so they can feel better, maybe the guilt. And instead of working through the consequences with God and saying, God, help me, help me be redemptive in all these consequences. Help me understand. Help me not go to shame in the consequences. Instead, go to you. They want to push um, the consequences away. And, and that is not going to be a healthy way to find healing with the Lord. Does that make sense? Just this idea that David, you know, even as we fast forward to first Kings and the next interaction with Bathsheba, David continues to say, what I, what I did was evil in the sight of the Lord. He never says, why don't you all get over it? You know, God forgave me. Why don't you forgive me? We never hear that with David. Um, somehow he's able to let God's grace interrupt his shame. And, and yet at the same time, um, kind of man up to the consequences of his sin. Um, he must have carried tremendous pain for the rest of his life, but he never tried to ease the pain by diminishing what he had done. And I think that's, that's really quite something. So I guess I would say for someone who's dealing with some of these similar consequences, study the life of David um, after his sin. I think there's some, some really incredible things to see about what it means to be truly repentant. One of the things we've been identifying, even in this series, is uh, an outsider's perspective. So I know last week, Ryan and I talked about um, Ruth navigating her situation in the context of having Naomi as a wise advisor telling her what to do with Boaz. I think of Rahab. She acted because she heard of different stories of what Israel had done, so she must have heard it from somewhere. Um, I think of uh, Judah's situation, Tamar brought to light the wrong that he was doing. And so one of the things I appreciated about your message was how important Nathan was. So he gets, he's another character. There's so many good characters in this, but Nathan is another character that um, seemed like a, an important key to what you were trying to tell us uh, as a church of how the church can really help step into these situations. So um, unpack that a little bit. I, I know Nathan has been an intriguing character to both of us, so... So what are your thoughts on Nathan uh, and how he influences this part of the story? One of the things that pops to my mind first about Nathan as a counselor is when you're dealing with abuse and victimization, stories are really critical for both the betrayed and the betrayers to see themselves more accurately. There's lots of statistics on especially men who, who betray their wives and 
um, repentance and many don't see their own sin until they see it in someone else, like in a, in a group and they hear another man talk and then there's this recognition. So David is ancient wisdom, right? He, he, he's, he's so amazing, his courage to go to the king for one thing, but also to, to begin, how many of us would go in hot headed, you know, and, but Nathan draws David in and even uses a parable that would mean something to David as a shepherd, right? So it's just brilliant. I think, um, for those of us who are walking alongside those who have sinned against others, the, again, the pause and the asking God for his creativity, his words. Nathan spoke for God. He didn't speak for himself. And so God is the one who uses story. God is the one who approaches David that way. So that's just one piece of Nathan that I think is is really phenomenal and, and so informative for us. I also uh, do think there's an application for us, and I mentioned this in the message, that that we have a role to play in people's lives, especially the abused. Often they don't, um, abuse disorients us and it causes us to, to blame ourselves, especially when it's by somebody who we should have trusted, when it's relational betrayal. When, there, when someone we should be able to trust has violated that trust, especially grossly like David did, um, to survive, we blame ourselves. And, or we, um, and we have to either turn to, they call it fight, flight, fawn. You know, we either run away, we fight in anger, or we collapse in despair. And that's how we survive. And we need the Nathans to say, here's what really happened, to be a witness to what happened to us. And I think that's the other thing that Nathan does, is he's a witness to what really happened, telling us that God is a witness sorry, to what happens to those who suffer. He calls it out and he says it as it is. And there is no healing until a wound is actually acknowledged that it's as deep as it is. Wounds that are ignored are reopened. And so we, it's, it's brilliant from a counselor perspective, um, what it should have meant, could have meant. We pray it meant to Bathsheba to hear. We don't know, we're not told in the text that Bathsheba heard the parable but it's, it certainly seems to be implied when we look at the end of 2 Samuel 12 that the comfort she receives is that God sees her, that God knew, and God called it out. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things you mentioned in your message, or at least in your notes, was that you know Nathan was speaking for God, but was also giving words to what Bathsheba must have felt as well. So, man, so powerful to see Nathan um, give that parabolic uh, accusation toward David and, and open his eyes to what's going on. And of course, Nathan's words also lead me to my skeptic question Aye, because here we go. Um, the skeptic question in this one is, is pretty heavy because, you know, if you're following along, you know, I have this like classic VeggieTales view of Nathan coming in and sharing the story of the little sheep. And, you know, you're like, oh, that's a good story. That's a good way to do this. And then Nathan ends it like this. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, David. But because, sorry, edit that out. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. What a powerful uh, thing to even say. Uh, the, the sins of David are going to affect his newborn son. Um, it's, you know, to a skeptic, you can imagine the accusations here, like what is going on? Why did this have to happen? Um, 
and not only is it in this situation, but you look at the following stories. So uh, literally the next chapter is about Amnon and Tamar, which there cannot be a coincidence that this female's name is Tamar because a very similar thing happens where Tamar um, gets taken and raped essentially. And you follow the, the story along in Samuel and Absalom. He, he's like the expression of power, th- this abuse of power that David has. So I guess the point I'm saying here is it seems like David's sin is going to affect not only him, but his generations, even in the most immediate sense that this baby, this innocent baby is going to die. What is going on with what God is saying through Nathan here? Um, I know the classic question is, do these newborn infants that, that pass away, do they go to heaven? Uh, what is God's heart for these uh, babies if God is saying, because of the sins of the parents, this son born to you will die. It's a tough skeptic question. But. It's a, it is a tough one. <clears throat> and it's, um, it's interesting. It's the only case in all of scripture where a death of a child is the consequence of someone's sin. So we need to be really careful that we don't build any kind of theology on one instance. Um, We should be uncomfortable with this. We should be uncomfortable with the effects of sin and suffering in a broken world as God is uncomfortable with it. And there are actions that God will take in a world that is broken like ours that will not make sense to us. I think what's really important if we look at the text, though, if we stay in the text, is the suffer in the text is David. David grieves and he laments, and then the way he pleads for the baby's life. So God has already spoken. Because of what you've done, the baby will die. And yet it's curious that David laments, pleads, fasts. He, he pleads with God to spare the child's life. I think that's an indication of what David knows and wants us to know about the heart of God, that God does not want this baby to die, but there has to be a consequence to sin. He is a God of justice, righteousness, and peace. And what would happen in the kingdom if there were no consequences to David's sin? So that's an important piece that we do see the heart of God through David that probably weeping more than David was God when this baby had to die for the, for the consequence of David's sin. He had to be pub- David had to be public, publicly called out for what he did in private. And part of it was that his son would die. Again, the king's grief is so severe, his servants think he's going to die. David pleads with God for the child's life. Again, evidencing an understanding of God's heart for the innocent that suffer at the hands of others. And then it's very curious as the baby, after the baby dies, David gets up, washes, and his servants are very confused. Why is he okay after the baby is dead? And he uses those interesting words, I will return to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, um, the baby didn't suffer, I suffered, because God took the baby in a compassionate way. Um, I suffer, and the baby is safe in the hands of God. Someday I will return to that baby. And, you know, the only hope of David to be both with Uriah and, and this baby is the grace of God. So I think that's the piece we, need, we do need to look at. Um, looking at the text that, again, David shows the heart of God and also kind of does answer the question for us about the innocent 
and when a baby does die. You know, I've been all over the map on this because I have a daughter who is severely disabled and is still at the developmental age of a baby. And I've often wondered how accountable is she for her sin? And because we're all born in sin and even babies can be, can be naughty. Um, but she doesn't sin consciously. And I think that's part of both this, this case here, we can see um, that God does not hold the baby accountable for the origin of sin from Genesis. The baby does not, is not held accountable for David's sin by any means. And as we look at Romans 1 and um, people being without excuse, I think there's a good case to be made that, that every child is embraced into the hands of God at death, when they die and that there is, a, there is a severe mercy and a comfort that they experience and that the parents are the ones that are the grievers. And so, um, yeah, I, I can't really make a case for it. There's no scripture that says all babies who die before this particular age um, are in heaven. But I think the heart of God that we see through the text and throughout scripture, and then again, some key passages like Romans. And yeah, we're all born with original sin, but we're held accountable for the sins we commit. And children, babies um, are not aware of the sins that they're committing. So I would say I would say I lean I lean on that end, but I could be I could my mind could change on that as I said the scriptures further, but it seems to be it seems to be consistent with this text and the rest of God's heart. It sort of reminds me of the uh, question of suffering in general. It's just like suffering exists. Um, we may not figure out why. Just look at the book of Job. He's trying to determine why, and then he sees God is just orchestrating so many things. I feel like that's the beautiful thing about the Christian worldview is that we have hope in a God who cares deeply about children, about babies. And so, uh, and even about suffering, he, he's near to the brokenhearted, as you said. And, and that leads me to my final question, uh, bringing it back to Bathsheba. Because in 2 Samuel 12, uh, her story seems to end by saying this in verse 24, it says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. And so that's seemingly where the story of Bathsheba closes. The interesting thing is if you flip over one book, you get to the book of Kings, which traces Solomon, and then the, the long, long, long lineage of kings that is reflected, again, in Matthew, in the genealogy, you'll see the kings listed there. But the book, First Kings, much like First uh, Samuel opens up with this Hannah figure that gives birth to Samuel, First Kings actually opens up with Bathsheba influencing what's next for the Israelite nation. Uh, it says this, uh, David, he's become, you know, bedridden, and uh, he, unbeknownst to him, it seems like there is this person named Adonijah who pretty much usurped the throne, used his power to take over, uh, to, to fill the vacuum of power with, along with Joab, who we've met as the, the commander of David's army, and Abiathar, uh, who was a priest who aligned himself with Adonijah. Well, what's interesting is in, it seems like Nathan, again, a, a character that appears again, and Bathsheba seem to team up and, and go to David and say, hey, didn't you swear that Solomon was going to be the next king? 
Bathsheba goes in first to say that, and then Nathan comes in and says the same thing. And sure enough, David says, yeah, you're right. Solomon is the next king. I'm going to make Solomon the next king. And what you find, that is the birth of Solomon's reign. It happened because Bathsheba was there. My question to you, this is such an odd ending to a Bathsheba story. We're we're looking for this redemption. We've been talking about all these different things throughout this Christmas series of looking for how God is going to work through the situation. How does this passage in 1 Kings 1 and 2 um, speak to that um, narrative, that, that Bathsheba's situation, what, what happened to it? Uh, is this restoration? Is this redemption? Like what exactly is going on and why do we think that her story ends this way? It's super fascinating because in, in this context, had Adonijah succeeded in taking the throne, Bathsheba and Solomon would have actually probably been killed. That's what happened when a son of a different wife, so Adonijah was David's oldest son, and so he, she was not just fighting for Solomon's throne, she's fighting for his life. And, and she reminds David that he had given her a promise, which is interesting because we don't see that in First Sam, or Second Samuel 11 and 12. We don't see David promising, we see God promising, but we don't see David promising Bathsheba that her son would be his heir. So obviously he gets that from God because we see that in the text. So David reminds, or sorry, Bathsheba reminds David of his promise to her that Solomon would rule. What's so fascinating is that when Bathsheba goes to David and and David recommits to Bathsheba that Solomon will be on the throne, David responds, says, call in Bathsheba for me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king swore an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every difficulty, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, your son Solomon is to become king after me, and he is the one who is to sit on my throne and my place, and this is exactly what I will do this very day. So he, Bathsheba has this influence and David, even in, even in honoring Bathsheba, listening to her, but he also even owns, again, his ongoing consequences and God who has been faithful to him. So it's, some say this means Bathsheba was transformed. You know, it's hard to say we don't hear from her, but she doesn't speak in 2 Samuel eleven twelve, And when she does speak, she speaks for God because God is the one who has anointed Solomon, who has, who has promised David. So she fights for and defends Solomon's rule in line with God's promises. So Nathan depended on her and David listened to her from a woman who we never heard from at the beginning, who was taken, who was silenced, who was victimized. That's pretty awesome that a prophet now depends on her to restore the kingdom rightly to to what God has promised and that David, his king, listens to her. I have one more bonus question for you. When we look back to the genealogy uh, in Matthew 1, uh, it's a fascinating thing because it doesn't say Bathsheba. It says it's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Last question. We've been talking about these four women up to this point, and then we get to a woman that he, Matthew doesn't even name. He says Uriah, or the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why is that? And how does that help us ex- ex- understand Christmas a little bit better? I'm not sure how it makes us understand Christmas. I'll think about that one. I think, <laughs> I think the, my, my sense and, and really what shaped 
even the Bathsheba point of view, hearing God's point of view for Bathsheba, is that is hugely significant, that she is not called Bathsheba, that she is called the wife of Uriah. Matthew, God, through the hand of Matthew, wants us to never forget that David took her, that she was somebody else's wife, and that God brought, I guess is how it connects to Christmas, that God brought redemption through horrific suffering. That through somebody whose life was taken from her, somebody who was devastated beyond even knowing who she was, her identity taken, God redeems and brings her into, he didn't just have a plan for her life. Through her life, he fulfilled his plan for all of our lives. And so I guess that is the, the message of Christmas, that while we may be seen unseen or while we may walk through seasons of devastation where we do not know who we are anymore, where our lives have been taken from us, there is a God who sees. And he doesn't just see, but he also moves. And he also moves and he has a plan. And the faith to believe that he has a plan for our lives, even out of suffering, is to look at Jesus and to see that, that through Bathsheba, he did bring his son into the world who would be betrayed for us so that we might belong to him, that we might be named as his. Well, I know this is a very powerful and very emotional uh, story. So, Patty, thank you so much for shedding light on what's going on, all these different characters, and just the beauty of God's redemption, even in the worst of sin and the worst of suffering. So, Patty, thanks for hopping on the mic again. Thanks for having me. Thank you.